Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jonathan Duyo. He's known as the Mindful Money Man, and his book is called Mindful Money, Simple Practices for Reaching Your Financial Goals and Increasing Your Happiness Dividend. A website to find out more about Jonathan is mindful.money. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Jonathan. Thanks very much, Jordan. I'm excited to be here. Just give us a little bit of your background leading into uh, your whole study of mindful money. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming we want the uh, shortest version, so uh, we'll, we'll keep it. We'll keep it pretty, pretty tight. Uh, I was raised in Rapid City, South Dakota. We didn't have a lot of money. That sort of pushed me to have an understanding of money. You don't have it, you want it. That's kind of what happens. Uh, and so I, I started studying the stock market and small business when I was about nine and ten years old. I was that kind of nerd, uh, and and so much that I went on to college and I started studying finance in college, but um, sort of got really bored. And after being bored with finance, I switched to philosophy and comparative religion. So I became a seminarian. I actually came to California to study uh, in Lutheran seminary. I was a, I was raised Lutheran and I was, you know, given, giving, uh, uh, not speeches. What do you call it when you're at the, at the podium in the church sermons? I was given the sermon on Easter. I did all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, uh, started there and decided, you know what, this isn't really for me either. I switched over to Buddhism and became a Buddhist academic. And then my first wife said, Jonathan, it's your turn to go to work. Um, and I was a dropout in a Buddhist program. So there's no real job for that. And went back to what I loved early on and started working with investments and people and their money. And I got a job at Dean Witter, spent five years on Wall Street, started my own firm in about 2001. So that's 20 years ago. Um, and that sort of tells a nutshell of the story. All right. Well, what's happened in the last 20 years? We got from there to here. Well, there's been, I mean, in markets and the economy, there's been sort of two really big events that have occurred that have sort of driven outcomes for me personally. Um, the first one was obviously 2008. It was a pretty big event in uh, global markets and in local economies and in, and with the families that I work with. And so in 2008, basically March of 2009, I was sitting with a client and that client said, um, you know, this is a great story, Jonathan, y- you should write a book. And that client happens to be a Pulitzer Prize winning author. And so when a Pulitzer Prize winning author tells you to write a book and agrees to write your forward for you, you start that process. And so it took me seven years to take my philosophy, um, which is really that you can't you can't manage investments. You can only manage an investor. You can only manage yourself. You, you can't really pick and choose. You can't time the market. You can't um, do the things that most of media tells us we should try to do, but you can become a better investor by working on yourself. And so that's largely what we did with the company. And so 2009, I wrote the book. 2019, we changed the name of the whole company. It used to be Deal Wealth Management. Now it's Mindful Money. Everything we do is focused on helping people with financial planning, financial education, teaching their kids, learning themselves about how money works and how to get to that, you know, retirement income that can't outlive. Uh, a lot of things that I, I know that you talk about as well. So why don't you describe what you mean by mindful? It's a word that might mean a lot of different things to different people, but what does mindful mean to you? So just just the definition uh, is is a good place to start, right? Terms. Mindfulness is the non-judgmental awareness of the present moment. It's the 
recognition of reality before we apply a bunch of narratives. So a long time ago, and relating this to money, a long time ago, there was this belief sort of at the foundation of all economics that um, men and women are rational animals. Uh, but in the last 15 or 20 years or so, uh, there's been a renaissance in this thinking uh, with the birth of behavioral finance. So today, no one really thinks that we're rational. Everyone knows that we're driven by a host of cognitive and emotional biases. And this realization hasn't quite, it's beginning to, it hasn't quite completely poured over into how we behave with money. So we have this we have this general stance. Most humans kind of believe that happiness comes from consumption, you know, better job, a better car, a bigger house, those kinds of things. And financial success comes from investment selection and market timing. But with a brain driven by these cognitive and emotional biases, we can't consume enough, which leads us to things like addiction and depression. And all of our investing efforts end up as short-term speculation, which leads us to do the opposite. You know, it leads us to buy high and sell low and repeat this as the adage says until we're broke. Uh, mindfulness, the non-judgmental awareness is a doorway to reason at the moment that your brain is telling you to buy a thing that you shouldn't buy or telling you to change your portfolio that you shouldn't change. Okay. So if, if you, and you have a whole program to help people become mindful. This is not something that you just do because they're, they're going against all their normal instincts, you're saying, basically, which is to react in the moment and, as you say, want for consumption and, and uh, kind of speculative trading. What is the process of getting from the normal way that people think about this to a, a state of mindfulness that you're talking about? Great, great, <laughs> great question. So in, in the book, we, we actually separate three different pieces. And I, and I, think, it's, I think this is the basic outline of the process. The, the first section of the book is about the things that we have to unlearn, the things that we learn, whether it's at the knees of our parents and grandparents, or, or if it's the, it's the things that you read about in Money Magazine or Kiplinger's or a lot of these places about, you know, buy this now, sell this now, the, the things that drive us to make these kinds of decisions. So there, there's eight or nine of them that we put into the book that are, that are really, that are really unlearning. It's unlearning yeah. what you've learned. It's unlearning, what, it's unlearning the lessons that are inappropriate or wrong. And then the middle part of the book is really figuring out what are the things that actually create ongoing, sustainable happiness? What, where does well-being come from? And this is, this is stuff, you know, if you think about, you know, Jonathan, you spent some time in seminary. You spent some time studying sort of uh, comparative religion and specifically uh, Buddhism. Well, there's a, there's a long, long history of philosophers and uh, religious folks and more modern days, there's neuro, neuroscientists and psychology that all kind of talk about eight things. Uh, and, you know, the list could be 10, it could be seven, you know, depending on what you, you know, compartmentalize and put in different places. But health, uh, lifelong learning, uh, experiences, relationships, meaningful work, you know, accountability to yourself and what your real goals are, generosity, optimism, gratitude. Th these are the things that when you pursue them lead to a meaningful life, lead to well-being, lead to, you know, what, what the philosophers refer to as happiness or sustainable happiness. And that's those the second thing. Pillars. Those are the pillars of happiness. Is that what yeah. you're saying? Yeah, that's what, that's what we call the pillars of happiness. And yes. then the, the third section of the book is really creating a plan after you've unlearned after you understand, you know, which mix of those pillars are best for you, creating a plan to get you to those pillars. 
right? And then it's it's a matter of trade-offs. It's a matter of figuring out how much income do I need? Do I sacrifice, you know, family life for more income? Does that make sense? Is that going to lead to more happiness and greater well-being or not? And these are things that we don't think about uh, unless we think about them. So we try to put those first. What has been the reaction to the book and have people gone through your process and are more happy than they were before? So it's it's a... It's difficult. So when I talk to people who've read the book and I ask them, and, and, and the way the book works is there's a little exercise at the end of every chapter. I think all in, there's 27 chapters, there's 27 exercises. At the end of the book, you've, you've unlearned, you've learned, you've thought about it, you've been, you've been reflective personally, and then you've sort of written your, your own personal financial plan. So people that have actually read the book, and I've talked to lots of people, um, and almost all of them say, I ask, did, did you do the exercises? They all say, no, I don't do the exercises, <laughs> uh, which, you know, that, that says something. So we've actually created, and it should launch in like a month from now, uh, we've created courses, a single course that actually holds people's hands through this whole process. Um, so in terms of the book process, I don't think people have done a great job of following the process to get there. Uh, in terms of in our own work face-to-face, we do have like 300 clients. I have, I have a team of eight that work in wealth management and we, we do financial planning, we do investing, we, we constant communication with our face-to-face clients. Um, it's, it's, we drive it more. And so clients are very responsive when you talk about, okay, now we're going to talk about what's really important to you. And we're going to go through these exercises to figure out what that is. Um, now we're going to talk about, you know, pandemics occur, that may, gives us certain emotions that makes us want to do certain things, why we might not want to pursue the things that it makes us feel we should pursue. Um, and we talk people off ledges and we talk people out of the excitement of GameStop. And we, so it's, it's, it's a lot of, okay, we have a plan. Now let's stick to the plan. And that's, that becomes a lot of that face-to-face service. So how do you deal with resistance? I mean, people are resisting their normal impulses for greed and fear and, acquisitiveness, all the things that we're taught in the society. And when you talked about this other way of doing it, there's going to be resistance. How do you deal with that resistance? Yeah, it's, I mean, that's a great question. That's, that's the 500, that's the 500 pound gorilla. That's, that is the thing that we have to figure out. And we do it with a regular, consistent messaging. Like when we work with clients, we're, we are constantly returning to, because I mean, think about this. We, we sit with a client maybe four times a year. Uh, we we may prep, we may send some stuff for them to prep for that conversation. We prep ourselves for that conversation. We may sit with them for 90 minutes, but then they go off into the world and they read media and they read, you know, uh, watch the television. They, they read their emails. Their aunt says they're afraid of a certain thing and makes some suggestions. And their nephew says, you should buy Bitcoin. You should, you should really invest in this GameStop thing. How, so how do we, how do we battle that? We, we are constantly communicating we internally we're hosting you know event a month that's educational or fun we send out a weekly conversation where we, we talk about something that's going on in the markets I, i've referenced three or four articles that i've read that i like uh, and that just gives them a chance for a feedback loop so hey jonathan great article or hey jonathan i saw this thing in the media what do you think um, so it's really about constant communication because it's not enough to know what they need to do it's you have to do what you need to do. And so we're constantly trying to bridge that knowing doing gap with more conversation, more communication. And we're always battling, you know, the, the feeling of the moment, always. Yeah, very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jonathan DeYo. 
Uh, his book is called Mindful Money, Simple Practices for Reaching Your Financial Goals and Increasing Your Happiness Dividend. You can find out more about him and his work at mindful.money. We'll be back after this. If you're like me, when you think back to the financial crash of 2008, it's easy to be understandably worried about another potential drop. You and I work hard for our savings, and we want to make sure a portion of it is protected if and when turbulent financial times arise again. Imagine yourself being able to easily have a portion of your savings protected from market volatility and owning the world's oldest and most trusted form of exchange. That's gold. Gold provides financial freedom, allowing you to save outside of the banking sector, privately, in a trusted fashion, anywhere in the world. Vaulted offers users easy, uh, easy buying, easy selling, unrivaled value, incredibly low costs, and unmatched security. All through an easy-to-use web app that gives you uh, the ability to buy and sell gold at the tap of your fingers. It's really quite easy when I use it at Vaulted. You get higher returns compared to stocks alone. $1,000 invested in a portfolio of 75% stocks and 25% gold 50 years ago with annual rebalancing would have had a 10% higher return than stocks alone. And compared to the conventional 70% stocks to 30% bonds portfolio, your total return would be almost 40% higher. It also gives you lower risk. When stocks go down, historically, gold has a tendency to appreciate. Thus, a balanced portfolio of stocks and gold has a significantly lower risk of a large drop, as illustrated by the example back in 2008. By adding some gold to your portfolio, you can cut your long-term risk almost in half. Gold allows you to be your own bank. Banking systems have withdrawal restrictions, bail-ins, and bank failures. They're not your concern if you have physical gold. You can buy and sell gold at your convenience anywhere you like. If this is why an investment gold truly completes your portfolio, you should take a look at getting access to it in the stored value wherever you desire. To find out more about Vaulted, go and open up an account for free today at vaulted.com slash money answers. Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the internet, it's going to be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is going to be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. 
the Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jonathan Doyo. Uh, he is the uh, author of a book called Mindful Money, Simple Practices for Reaching Your Financial Goals and Increasing Your Happiness Dividend. You can find out more about him and his work at mindful.money. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. Thanks, Jordan. So we've been through quite a uh, dramatic change in the last year and a half or so. Uh, how can one be more mindful about money when you're going through a pandemic and everything that that has brought as far as people working at home and uh, changing their lifestyles and moving out of cities, all the changes that have happened, apply your mindful money uh, concept to what's just happened. So it's, I mean, there, there isn't, when it comes down to those sorts of, uh, a pandemic has occurred, um, I've lost my job, uh, or, or a pandemic has occurred and I'm moving to another city. There's nothing, there's nothing like not mindful about those kinds of things, right? Some, some decisions have to be made. Um, you know, when I think about the last year and a half and, and, the, and what that's done to people's finances, you know, I'm reminded of the phrase, you know, is this a V recovery? Is this a W recovery? Is this a, and I, th- you know, I think the challenge is we're, <clears throat> we're looking at a K recovery, Right. Um, and, and some people have suffered far less a- a- economic damage than others. Now, if, if you were lucky, as, as I have been incredibly lucky, if you were lucky to be able to work from home and you, and you held on to your equity portfolio, you know, maybe you, you bought more you know, in March of 2020, then, then you're sitting in a fantastic place today. The reality is you didn't spend as much as you were planning on it before COVID. Um, so your savings are very high and the markets have more than completely recovered. So you're in a great place. Uh, so when you're thinking about what you should do, you, you should be preparing for the next time uh, and sort of trying to get out of the way of the behavioral foibles that occur the next time. And there's, there's some basic things that we try to talk about uh, for folks when we go through a recession of any stripe. You know, when, when markets drop, it gives us an opportunity to opportunistically rebalance. It gives us an opportunity to maybe do some tax loss harvesting. Um, it gives us an opportunity to maybe do a Roth conversion. Uh, and, that, and the only thing that really exists today of the four things that you look at in a recession is you may have an opportunity to refinance some of your debt. Now, it makes a lot of sense. And I, and I, I think I might have bottom ticked this. I just refinanced my own house. I got less than 2% on a mortgage, which is incredible. Um, and we've been talking about it for three months. You know, if, if you have the opportunity to, re, uh, to refinance, do so uh, if you haven't already done it. So, However, if you're in the other camp, you lost your job, um, you're relying upon the myriad benefits, you know, student loan deferrals, eviction or foreclosure eliminations and, you know, unemployment benefits from the state or the federal government. These challenges are going to become larger in the near future. Even if you go back to work, you probably have a hole in your finances and this is going to be this is going to be hard. You got to You're going to have to negotiate payment terms with creditors, um, landlords. 
you may have to start making additional payments, right? You, you, you haven't You're catching up. You missed. Yeah, you have, exactly. Right. You got to catch up from debt you haven't paid. Um, perhaps more important than ever to pursue an increase in income, right? Find it, find a way to build up your emergency savings again. You're going to have to control your spending even more. Uh, get that emergency fund into place and pay down those high interest, those high interest debts, high interest debts that we have. Obviously, this isn't unique to COVID. It's a reality of sort of systemic inequality. Um, and COVID just happened to make it worse this time. So there's a psychic toll that all this takes. It's like, can I do it? You know, is it or is it hopeless? Uh, you know, I'm going to get evicted if I don't. My student loans are going to start coming in again. Uh, my job, I'm getting paid less than I was before. You have to have a sense of hope that you can get out of these holes. How do people get that when they've, they've been pounded so much by these circumstances? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. The, the, uh, one of the things, you know, we talked, referenced briefly earlier the idea that successful personal finance is more about the person than it is about the decisions. It's more about emotional intelligence than it is about sort of brilliance or intellectual intelligence. It's more about EQ than it is IQ. And at the very foundation of that is you have to be able to believe in a better future. Uh, If you're going to invest in anything, if you are going to pursue a better job, if you are going to pursue higher education, if you're going to have a kid, you have to believe in a better future. Uh, So I I call that my beads of faith. And I I think about, you know, what my grandmother had to deal with, what my parents had to deal with. And even though this is a really stressful time for for myself, for folks, folks like me, and nowhere near as stressful as for a lot of folks that lost their job, um, when you, when you look at the long pace of history, you see that, you know what, people do actually overcome. People do find better ways. They do create and follow a path that works. And you kind of got to forgive yourself the current challenge. You kind of, you know what, we'll, we're going to keep working, keep putting one foot in front of the other, keep believing that the future can be better, and eventually it will be better, right? This is the this is the challenge. Is how do you maintain that faith when everything around you is is crumbling? Uh, right. But maintaining the faith is the way you get through the crumble. So let's talk about some specific examples of decisions people have made because of the pandemic. The first big one is massive numbers of people have been moving out of center cities to the suburbs and the exurbs, and in many cases engaging in crazy bidding wars for homes um, <laughs> and pricing these things way up. How does one be mindful about that whole situation of leaving where you've been uh, and getting into bidding wars? So I, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and so I'm imagining, and, and my wife and I actually are looking at, uh, you know, a mountain home. We're gonna we're gonna take a, a drive, you know, a, a driving trip this this uh, summer. We're gonna drive through Colorado and Utah and look for a, look for a mountain home. Mm-hmm. And so we're you know we're on these we're on these apps looking at these prices. Truly, uh, you know, Realtor.com. And we're looking at the prices of these places. And there's a house that we looked at actually. This is this is in Nevada on on the east side of Lake Tahoe. There's a house we looked at two years ago. Sold for 1.2 million. It's currently listed for 2.7 million. So. This is the kind of thing that if I'm leaving the Bay Area, well, I have a really expensive house. I don't really have to, I don't really have to be worried about, is it, you know, million five or million eight. Um, But if you're in South Dakota already, if you're already in Montana, 
uh, and you're trying to buy your first home, that makes that incredibly, incredibly difficult. So if you're there and you're working at a, you know, you're working at a job in Montana and your average price of the home has gone from four hundred to eight hundred thousand dollars in Bozeman, Montana, or in Missoula, Montana. Um, you you, you got to be aware that hey, you may not be able to afford this. You may be renting for a long time. You may have to move further afield. This is this is something that people in cities have done forever and ever and ever. Right? I, I remember when I first started at at um, Dean Witter, I lived in Emeryville in a four hundred square foot condominium, um, and I knew people that would drive into the city from, you know, two hours away. And this is how people live in places that are, that are going up in price as they live further away and they commute. That's not necessarily great, but people can move around. They can move to a different place and not every place has gone up in price. It's the places that have been like really, really, really sought after the Bozeman Montana's, the, the mount, the mountain homes have been really sought after, but there's places in, Missouri and Tennessee, and there's places in South Dakota, and that's where I'm from. So that's not a, I'm not dissing South Dakota. It's where I'm from. There's places there you can still get a house for $120,000. Has this been irrational behavior, the amount of bidding up of these suburban and exurban homes? I don't think so because it's the, it's the people, the reality is there's few of those places and the people leaving New York and LA and the Bay area are many and they're, and they have money. So if you, you know, if you happen to already own a home in those places, then your, your, you know, your value has gone up tremendously. Maybe it's time to sell to one of these people that are coming in and move someplace else. But then when you talk to people that live in the community, they're like, these people from the, from California, New York are ruining the community now in some right. places, right? They're different yeah. kinds of people. <laughs> it's such a great, so that's one decision people made. The other one is, is jobs and uh, quitting their job or doing a different job or, uh, working from home permanently now instead of going into it. That, that's been a major change that a lot of people have. Is, is that something that's been handled well or, or how to handle that whole job situation in light of COVID? So it, it hasn't been completely handled yet. When they, when they first, the, the announcements first came out from companies, hey, you go ahead and work from home. The announcement hadn't yet been made that, by the way, if you move to a lower cost area, you're going to have a lower income. Uh, and then six months after that, that announcement came and they said, you know, Google said it, Apple said it, you know, we're, we are going to allow more work from home capacity after the pandemic. We see how this works. We didn't think it would. Now we're excited to see that it, it has and it will continue to work. But if you move from the Bay Area to, and I've, I've got clients that have done this, they move from the Bay Area to, um, you know, Kirkwood, California, a small mountain town, um, that's technically 15% less cost of living. Therefore, we're going to give you a slight cut in your pay based on where you live. And so that, I think, right-sizes that decision for people. It's just not all the companies have made that possible yet or made that announcement yet. Yeah. Very good. We're going to take another break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jonathan Duyo. His book is called Mindful Money, Simple Practices for Reaching Your Financial Goals and Increasing Your Happiness Dividend. You can find out more about him at his and his website, which is mindful.money. We'll be back after this. For many people, it can be difficult and intimidating to get started investing. Most people don't learn about investing in school or even from their parents. So many people are left out from the benefits of investing because they just don't know how to get started. But the stock market is designed to have millions of people participate and enjoy the returns that are available from investing in stocks over the long run. 
That's why I recently joined Public.com, which is an investing social network, which allows you to buy stocks for any amount of money while you share ideas and learn from a vibrant community of investors. I love the idea of Public.com because it's making the whole investing experience accessible, educational, and fun. You not only get all the usual tools to invest, like research on companies and mutual funds, but you also get to share your ideas and questions with a larger community of people all over the country. This is unlike any other stock trading platform I've ever used. Most stock trading services let you invest, but do not let you connect to a thriving community of knowledgeable investors. I find the app very easy to navigate and load with useful features to help me research investments and connect with other like-minded people. You can follow anyone you like, including people you don't know or famous people who show you what's in their portfolios. It's really a great way to get ideas about what I like and what I don't like to invest in. The public.com app is free to use, and there are no account minimums, so you can start with a really small amount of money, like $1. There are no commissions when you buy or sell stocks, bonds, or mutual funds. You can also do fractional investing, which means you can buy a slice of a company if its shares cost too much. Take a look at companies like Amazon or Berkshire Hathaway or Microsoft. It might be thousands of dollars a share, but you can just get a slice of it through fractional investing at public.com. Public.com is creating new, more inclusive cultures for investing. What they say, they want to open the stock market to everyone, and they mean everyone. The public.com community is made up of 40% women and 45% people of color. When you invest with public.com, you're never investing alone. They make it easy to collaborate and build your confidence as an investor. You get to connect with other users, friends, other members, and notable investors to learn new things together and see how they're investing. Public.com takes the responsible approach. They do not promote risky or gambling-like behavior, offer complex trading tools to beginners, or encourage uh, day-to-day trading. Instead, they promote long-term investing habits. Public prides itself on transparency and won't sell your data to market makers or third parties like other brokers do. They offer a way to break free of traditional financial institutions that want you to spend more money and profit from your trading information. Go to public.com slash money answers to follow me on public.com and see what I'm investing in. You can start investing today for as little as $1. You even get a free slice of stock when you join. So just go to public.com slash money answers to download the public.com app. This is valid for U.S. residents 18 years and older. Subject to account approval, you must see public.com slash disclosures, not giving investment advice. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. 
call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jonathan DeYo, uh, the author of Mindful Money, Simple Practices for Reaching Your Financial Goals and Increasing Your Happiness Dividend. You can find out more at his website, mindful.money. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. Thanks, Jordan. I'd like to get a sense of what you mean by the happiness dividend. Most people think of financial dividends of getting dividends from stocks, but what is the happiness dividend? So you, you, we, we talked just briefly about my uh, uh, philosophical underpinnings, and there's this there's this idea in philosophy or in uh, thoughtful rounds of people uh, that happiness is something you can't pursue. Happy. Happiness can't be the goal, right? Happiness is something that comes from a life well lived. It's something that ensues from a process or a series of decisions or uh, that, that aren't targeted happiness, but happiness is something that comes. And that's when we say that's the dividend, it's, you know, you don't, you don't buy Apple for the dividend. You buy Apple for its great company. It's got great leadership. It's got, um, and the dividend is something you get that comes along with that investment. Uh, and, and that's kind of how we think of happiness. And this is how the philosophers and people uh, reflect on happiness. It's, it's, you know, the goal of human life is not to have more money. It's to pursue or find, discover our version of happiness. Uh, and it's not, that, you know, it's not that money doesn't help. Like it obviously can support health and relationships and meaningful work and all the things we talked about earlier. Um, but it, in and of itself, can't be the goal. Money can't be the target in the same way that happiness can't be the target. That's what we mean by the happiness dividend. So when people do pursue money, I mean, just like take some current examples, uh, the GameStop craze where people yeah. getting in at 10 and it goes up to 400 and it's jumping all over the place and they're hurting the shorts and then it spreads to AMC and it spreads to silver and it's every day a new what I call flash mob investing target, basically. Yep. Those people are, are not into the happiness. They're just into greed. And so how do you deal with that? You're saying you just shouldn't play those games at all? I mean, how do you curb such a powerful emotion as greed? Well, so, I mean, it's, it's actually, we have, this, we have this onboarding process when, when clients are sort of kicking the tires on our business. And one of the things we're trying to figure out is, are these people that can be coached or, or are these people that are going to get really sucked into GameStop or Bitcoin or whatever the, whatever the thing is of the day. And, and I totally agree, you know, the flash mob, that's a great way to phrase it. It is the flash mob style of investing. So 
in order to do that, we talk about plan appropriate investing. So we talk about, you know, the, the first step, um, well, there's this, and I, I think that all those GameStop people, there's this enormous and ever increasing volume of uh, people trying to beat the markets, beat the markets, beat the markets. You can do better, you can do better if you do this, you do this. Here's a strategy, try this, try this. But an, another way to think about this is that, is that people can get lucky from time to time, right? This is what I think GameStop is. But luck is not a sustainable strategy. You can't repeat it. If you put today's uh, uh, attempted market beaters on a bell curve, they're going to fall with a relatively normal distribution. Like s- some are going to do really well, some are going to do poorly. And majority are going to be stacked up kind of close to the middle, right? On the bulge of the curve. Then when you fast forward, say three years, next period of time, you get a new distribution. The distribution looks the same, but the people that were ahead are now spread out over the whole curve. And the people that were behind are also spread out over the whole curve. What this means is there's no consistency of the relative success. So then when you apply, you know, taxes and transaction costs and all this kind of stuff, especially in like the Bitcoin space, because the transaction costs are so high, um, everyone loses ground to an index. And now these are really, really smart people with, 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 they can be really smart people with great financial acumen, with, with, you know, access to high levels of, of, you know, corporate executives and, and available technology. They can, they can, they can, you know, crunch the data in lots of different ways and they still can't outperform. So, how, how do we think we're going to do it by just, you know, reading the newspaper and, and reading our, our social media feeds or reading a subreddit? If we start with the idea that markets are unpredictable and we can't control for future relative performance, then the issue isn't about performance, right? It's about establishing and understanding a process and enjoying the process while it works, but, and this is the critical piece, holding on when it's not working. This is, again, you go back to that changing the person, not the portfolio. The portfolio is, is reflective of the plan. If the plan says you should have this percentage in risk and this percentage in safety, then keep that percentage in risk and this percentage in safety. Don't get scared out of that. Don't get attracted to the next shiny thing. Stay with the plan. And this is, we, we talk about this in the office. You stop predicting, start planning, and stay mindful you know, of your own limitations that you can make a difference and pull different levers that are going to provide better outcomes. So is the solution index investing and not trying to beat the market, but matching the market at low costs? I, I think that's a huge part of it. Uh, that's, that is how one should invest. I mean, there are certain always, you know, things that are in play when you invest. I think we talked about this. We've talked about this before. The, the always things in investing are things like, um, plan appropriate asset allocation, broad diversification, uh, regular rebalancing, and then keep your costs low. These are the always things in investing. Um, that being said, if you do those four things, you'll have, you have a very sustainable portfolio, but you may not reach your goals. So you have to continue saving and continue adding as well as keep the costs low and maintain those other three disciplines. But how do you avoid the appeal uh, of the, the siren song of the shiny object. I mean, the latest being Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin went from 3,000 to 65,000 and people feel they just can't, it's, it's fear of missing out, it's FOMO and it's going to yep. go to a million. How well, do you, you know, index investing is so boring compared to Bitcoin. How do you avoid that? I, th- I think you're honest. Like, well, well, wealth is actually, the management of wealth is very boring. 
the creation of wealth can be kind of exciting, but the management of wealth is very boring. And <laughs> this is this is this is very interesting to me because you know when I first started in the industry, I thought I was wicked smart, right? I traded options on this is dot com ninety six ninety seven ninety eight. I traded options every day. Like I I had you know I had clients and those clients bought municipal bonds, but I enjoyed traded op enjoyed trading options. Mm-hmm. I think today, I think the Bitcoin thing, I think the GameStop thing, I think there's another generation that happens to have been locked at home for a year, uh, who happened to have received a check from the government, um, who happened to have access to trading tools that didn't exist 10 years ago that are no cost to trade. And I think that they are learning how to invest. And they're going to learn some really, really important lessons in the next two or three years. They've learned a lot over the GameStop thing. Uh, um, but You don't think this is going to end well is what you're saying? Yeah, it's not going to end well. It's not going to end well. Well, there, there'll be people that say, you know what? I did really well on this GameStop. I tripled my money. I'm going to take some of that. I'm going to buy the Vanguard, whatever, S&P 500 index. And that's that in itself is a, is a good choice for them. Then I hope they'll learn and get curious and learn more and more and more. Um, but... But yeah, these people are learning lessons. They're learning how to invest, and they're gonna they're gonna learn the hard lessons as well. So, what's gonna happen? The market will fall, and all these. I mean, it's already happened to some extent. A lot of the high flying companies, the SPACs, that have gone up so much have come back. Uh, people are always being attracted to the shiny objects. It doesn't stay shiny forever. That's the lesson they're gonna learn, is what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I I believe they'll learn that lesson. Uh, some of them may not learn that lesson, and they'll repeat it. But eventually, you learn that lesson, and then you then you get curious, and you go, "Huh, that really hurts. What what did I do wrong? What can I do better?" And that's where you get the next round of people following the the, the vanguards or the iShares or the lower cost index stuff. Um, and and frankly, at the same time, the financial services world is trying to figure out how to attract you out of the thing that is the safest, securest, longest lasting, like an index portfolio. And now they have active ETFs and now they have SPACs and now they have, so Wall Street is continuing to create these products that people will buy. Um, it's just, how do you be smart and learn and, and figure it out and, and benefit yourself long-term? And if you spend some time, take some courses, read some books, follow the FIRE network, uh, you know, f- finish independent, retire early, that group of folks, you're, you're going to learn a lot and you'll probably do better long-term. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jonathan DeYo. He is the author of Mindful Money, Simple Practices for Reaching Your Financial Goals and Increasing Your Happiness Dividend. You can find out more at his website, which is mindful.money. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jonathan DeYo, the author of Mindful Money, Simple Practices for Reaching Your Financial Goals and Increasing Your Happiness Dividend. You can find out more at his website, mindful.money. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. Thanks, Jordan. Let's talk about wealth creation in today's society. Some people are saying it's kind of wealth has got a bad name to some extent. How how is it kind of fitting into the social fabric today, particularly as there's such a disparity between the winners and losers because of COVID? Yeah, it's. I mean, this is really interesting. I, I talk a lot about um, the difference between wealth and mindful wealth, uh, and I mm-hmm. and I think that there's. And this is actually a difficult topic for me. I was raised on the, I was raised in South Dakota. I was, you know, raised on the right side of the aisle. Uh, I've moved to Berkeley, California. I studied religion for seven years and, and philosophy. And so I've, I've kind of moved leftward from, from my upbringing. And so I, I have a foot in both camps. And so this conversation about wealth and, and the goodness of wealth and the badness of wealth and the judgment around wealth and stuff, it's like, I'm in the middle. And it's just, it's, it's a crazy thing to be in the middle of. But I think that there's, I think that there's three ways that mindfulness applies to wealth. Um, and the first is how it's created. Now, 40 years ago, if you look at the, if you look at the numbers, the Forbes lists or whatever, something like 75 or 80% of wealth was inherited. And today that's not the case. It's just now it's 75 or 80% is a new business was started and created. And, and that business had lots and lots of customers or clients and and was very, very successful. Many of those businesses are tech oriented. Um, most of them right now are, are sort of social media. There's a, there's a lot of social media billionaires and tech billionaires out there. Um, so most wealth today is in the hands of founders of businesses. And I have no problem with wealth that's created by these kind of businesses or, uh, but but it's the it's the process of the creation that's kind of, that's an interesting thing. And I, and I, I use Gates versus Bezos mm-hmm. as, an, as an interesting take. Now, I realize Gates isn't, Bill Gates is not, you know, he's not without problems. There were all kinds of, you know, issues and, and Microsoft was dragged through the mud in, in Europe and the United States for quite not quite a number of years. And antitrust reasons, basically. Yeah, yeah antitrust reasons. Um, but he created a platform, Microsoft, he didn't, but Microsoft created a platform that simplified Every type of business in the world made word processing, you know, something that's available to everybody. Um, and I don't know, the Excel spreadsheet, you know, changed my world when I had access to it. And anyone that knows how to use Excel goes, oh, my God, I can all these calculate. It's automatic. It's, it's incredible. This thing, the tool was incredibly powerful, right? The office suite was amazing. At the same time, so that, that's kind of what led to Bill Gates' wealth. Amazon and he used it. He used it to do all kinds of philanthropic things. He just didn't continue to make money. He oh god, yeah, as a way to, to really give back to the world in major, major ways. It's I mean, in a huge way, and you know, solving disease and and yeah. education systems, etc. So that would be what you would call mindful, right? Well, that so right now we're just on creation, right? The use of the wealth that 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 comes actually a little bit next, but in creation, I compare I compare him to Bezos. Yeah, and uh, Bezos weaponized shopping, deputized shoppers to sort of intentionally destroy small businesses in every community in the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, 
a lot of consumers save lots of money, right? But they destroy lives in the process. And as as long as they're allowed to, to and I'm not talking about just the shopping, now they're, they're creating products using the data they mine from their system to compete with the small businesses that sell on the Amazon platform. There's a problem with that. Um, and I, and that is not accidental. It's something that Bezos from the top down, it's been an intentional thing. And I think Amazon has created wealth for themselves, for people that are investors in the stock. Predatory way, you're saying. Yeah, really? predatory way, right? So there's, there's a creation of wealth that's predatory. There's a creation of wealth that's not. And that's, that's the thing that we really have to grapple with is how do we have a system that supports or, or attacks or doesn't allow the more predatory means of, of creating wealth. And then, you know, how it's used in the world, how it's invested, is it socially responsible? These are, these are different questions. Um, but, and then layering on top of that, and this is where the, uh, you know, growing up in South Dakota, ending up in Berkeley becomes interesting for me is tax rates. You know, I used to think that, I, you know, I was raised with very little, now I'm probably a one percenter, um, depending on if you're looking at income or assets, right? I'm, I'm a one percenter. And when I was little, I was like, no, 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 tax rates should be low. We didn't have any money. We didn't pay any tax really. Um, so it wasn't, but now that I have the money and, and usually people go from not having money in college to having money and they go from being more left leaning to being more right leaning. Right. I've gone, I've gone the reverse. Like I think it's ridiculous that I only pay a 37% tax rate. It's, it's uh-huh. silly to me that that's all I pay because I save more than is necessary for myself. I, I put enough away for my kids. I have, I have, you know, nice house, good cars, great vacations. I have everything I need and I'm still really hyper-focused on being productive and growing my business. There's no amount of 5% higher tax isn't going to reduce my proclivity to grow wealth and proclivity to keep saving and, and make more and grow my company. Um, of course, the argument against that is that the top 10% pay whatever, 60% of the taxes and the bottom 50% pay none of the taxes. So people say that the, the wealthy should pay their fair share. And well, they pay a huge amount. Yeah. Share right now. yeah, they do. They do. It's just it, the, the, the reason to not tax them, you know, I, th- I hear the, I hear the, um, uh, the Don Boudreaux's of the world talk about, well, if you if you tax a thing, you get less of it. Right. And I don't believe. You know, I don't believe that. I don't. And you, you know, drive I'm, them away. People move from California to Nevada when you raise tax rates. They sure. Move from New York to Florida if you raise taxes. So there is yeah. a point at which people don't want to stick around and get taxed at higher rates. Right. If you right. If you do that at the federal level, it's different than the Virgin Islands. Nevada. Yeah. 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 It's harder. I guess. I guess we can get into the discussion here. I'm. I guess what I'm saying is I'm okay paying a slightly higher tax rate. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Well, why is there such resistance to it that if people are doing so well, uh, they, they think they're being taxed too much? Yeah. And, that, and then it comes that I think that there's a mindfulness there. I think, I think that there's a lot of wealth that walls itself off and this is how wealth is in the world. It's, mm-hmm. it's, I got mine, you go get yours, but there's, we have, I have to admit like there's something that I'm good at um, and, and it's not poetry. The thing that I'm good at, the thing that I love to do, the thing that I'm good at and that I enjoy happens to be just, just out of luck. It happens to be something the world pays for. The world is willing to pay me for Now, if you're, if you're not good at this, if you're good at something else, if you're, if you're, if you're uh, great with kids, uh, you understand, you know, how to teach kids English 
you're going to make fifty, sixty thousand dollars, and that's you're going to have to live someplace where you can afford that. You're not going to have the same kind of benefits in terms of income that I have, and that's because you're good at something different. That's not that's not a skill that they develop. Are you guilty that you're making more than other people? I don't I don't feel guilty, no, but I feel like I should be taxed more for that. I think I've been lucky, and I'm okay in sharing that. Uh-huh. Particularly like right now, the infrastructure bill, okay, they're talking about $2.3 trillion, and not only hard infrastructure, but things like social services and free community college and pre-K education and uh, elderly and all kinds of kind of social things. Yep. And to pay for that, they want to raise corporate taxes from 21% to 28% and individual rates from 37% higher. Um, they're saying the richer people in the corporations have to support this kind of rebuilding of America. There's enormous pushback to that. What, what do you say on that debate? I don't push back. I, 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 embrace, uh, I embrace two additional layers on uh, you know, more progressive taxes. So, so raise the 37 back to 39.6, add a 42 and a 45. I'm fine with that. I'll pay wow. both. That's fine. Um, uh, and, and I, and I, and I, I understand some of the pushback, right? I understand that, but if, if you make $3 million and on that last, you know, million five, you pay 45%, it's only on that portion of your income. It's right? the margin so, extra amount. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, there's probably not a lot of people in your category that would agree with you. Some, some do, but not too many. Buffett, I guess, would be one example of that. We, well, we Buff- have- Buffett's, Buffett's is different, right? Buffett's is the is the capital gains tax. He's like, my income is capital gains. He wants to bridge the uh, to to close the gap between income and. Well, Buffett's talking gains. about getting rid of the capital gains tax altogether and making everything at regular income rates. You would you would yeah. be happy with that? I have a harder time with that, but but we're getting close to it. Yeah, the the idea of the last fifty years, the the benefit has gone to capital. The next 50 should be more balanced. Very good. Just briefly kind of sum up, what difference will it make in people's life if they live the mindful money life? You get, I mean, with mindful money, you end up with better financial outcomes and a more stable life, more sustainable life. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest uh, this hour has been Jonathan Duyo. His book is called Mindful Money, and you can find out more about it at his website, which is mindful.money. Thanks so much for being a very interesting guest on the Money Answer Show, Jonathan. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another edition of the Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.